Hello, and welcome back to Tectonic, a podcast that looks at the way technology is changing our lives. I'm John Thornhill, Innovation Editor at the Financial Times in London. Last week, we heard from entrepreneur Catherine Parsons, whose company Decoded aims to teach anyone how to code in a day. This week, we hear from the man who turned the process of learning a new language into snackable mobile lessons. His schools are coming to us and they're telling us, actually, I've changed my curriculum to match you. That was Louis von Ahn, co-founder and chief executive of Duolingo and computer science professor at Carnegie Mellon University. He is also the creator of the CAPTCHA system that generates visual tests that humans, but not computers, can pass. Lewis spoke to the FT's Tim Bradshaw in our San Francisco bureau. Lewis, thank you for visiting us from Pittsburgh. Why don't we start at the beginning? What first got you interested in technology and language and computers and all the things that you're now involved in on a day-to-day basis? Sure. I, I first got interested in computers when I was eight years old. I really wanted a Nintendo because all my friends had a Nintendo. And I begged my mother for about a year for a Nintendo. And instead of buying me a Nintendo, she bought me a computer. And I was pretty pissed off um, because I wanted a Nintendo. I wanted to play games. So I had to figure out how to use the computer in order to play games. This was back in the 80s. Computers were much harder to use. Then I got much better at it when I realized that I could um, borrow other people's games and make copies for myself and figure out how to get around the security mechanisms for that. I got significantly better, I guess, by pirating. Uh, But this was many years ago, and it was in Guatemala, where this was not the worst crime being committed. (laughs) So so I guess that's how I originally got into this. And I guess your first sort of widely used product was was the Capture. Mm -hmm. Can you just explain what that is and why you created it and what you unleashed on the internet yeah i was trying to get a phd in computer science my first year of the phd at carnegie mellon university and the captcha is these these distorted characters that people have to type whenever they're buying tickets online or whenever they're getting um you know email accounts or facebook account you usually get these random distorted words that you have to type that's a captcha and i co-invented that it was me and my phd advisor So this started my first year of my PhD program. What happened is that the guy who was the chief scientist at Yahoo at the time, at the time Yahoo was the biggest internet company in the world, the guy who was the chief scientist came to Carnegie Mellon University to give a talk about the 10 biggest problems that Yahoo had that they didn't know how to solve, kind of scientific problems. And I was at that talk, and I went and I tried to solve all 10 problems. I could not solve nine of them. Uh, And for one of them, I had an idea. And it was, uh, you know, I started working on it with my with my PhD advisor. And, and within a few weeks, we basically had come across the idea of the distorted characters. And within a couple of months, this was live in Yahoo. What was the problem they were trying to solve? Ah, yeah. In this case, the problem was there were people who wrote programs to obtain millions of Yahoo accounts every day. So in particular, it was spammers uh, who wanted to send spam. The spammers had the problem that each Yahoo account only allowed them to send, like, I don't know, 500 messages per day. And spammers wanted to send millions of messages per day. So their their solution was to write a program that would obtain millions of email accounts. From each one, they would only send, you know, 200 emails. And then all combined, they were able to send all their spam. So that was that was the problem. And, you know, at first, you know, everybody has the, the idea that, well, we're going to figure out what programs look like. So maybe if they do it too fast, then it's a program. But pretty quickly, you start realizing that 
programs can just emulate almost anything that humans can do. So then the question became, can we do a test that tests whether something is a human or a computer? And that's the idea of a CAPTCHA, these distorted characters that humans can read, but computers cannot read it as well. And that's, that's why they work. Uh, suddenly they got used all over the internet. And, uh, you know, whenever I started going to parties or something, I, you know, people would ask me what I did and I told them about this. And then I became a very hated guy for a while. <laughs> <laughs> and did you profit from this? No, the first the first version of a CAPTCHA, I was very happy that was being used. And that was it. Uh, you know, at the time, I really didn't even really realize that you could profit from this type of thing. I was just happy that it was being used. But from there, you you ended up at Google a little later via, I think you sold a company, or yeah. maybe more companies to, to Google. So was that directly related to the CAPTCHA stuff? So I've, I've sold two companies to Google. One of them was related directly related to the CAPTCHA. What happened is that a few years after I helped invent the original CAPTCHA, it was about five or six years afterwards, you know, at first only Yahoo were, use, were using them, but by now every single website or every single major website in the world was using a CAPTCHA. So this is in the sort of mid-2000s? Yeah, like 2006, 2007. Basically every, every website was using these. And at some point I, I thought, well, I'm just going to try to estimate how many CAPTCHAs are typed by people around the world every day. And the number I came up with, which happened to be pretty close to reality, but you know, I was just doing a back-of-the-envelope calculation, is about 200 million times a day somebody typed a CAPTCHA. Um, wow. And now when I first realized that, I was pretty proud of myself. I thought, look at, look at the impact that my work has had. Uh, but then I remembered that people didn't really like doing these and that it takes about 10 seconds of your time to type one of them. And that's when I started kind of getting upset because 10 seconds times, you know, 200 million, that gives you 500,000 human hours every day are being spent on this. Right. So that's when I came up with this next idea, that, which ended up turning into a company. Uh, it was a project called ReCAPTCHA which is kind of like the, the second go-around of CAPTCHAs. The idea was, can we do something useful with these 500,000 hours? So those 10 seconds while you're typing a, a CAPTCHA, uh, you know, the first kind of insight is during those 10 seconds, your brain is doing something amazing. It's doing something that computers, despite 50 years of research, right, computers cannot yet do. So could we do something useful with it? And after you know, some time of thinking, I came up with the idea that uh, you could be as you were typing in a CAPTCHA, which the main purpose was to identify yourself as a human, you could also be helping to digitize books. And the way that worked is there's a lot of projects that were trying to digitize books. Um, Google had one, for example, um, and that's why they ended up buying this project. But the idea is they were going to take all the books that were have ever been written and put them on the Internet. Now, the way the process that process works is you start with a book, you scan it, which literally what it is is it's taking a digital photograph of every page of the book. You're left there with pictures with words. The next step is that the computer needs to be able to recognize what the words are in those pictures. Uh, but for older books, the computers cannot do it as well. And that's exactly the same reason why computers cannot read CAPTCHAs, because it's kind of distorted text. For older books, the ink has faded, the pages have turned yellow. Computers could not read all the words. They could read some, but not all of them. So what we started doing is we started taking all of the words that the computer could not recognize, and we started giving, giving them to people while they were typing CAPTCHAs on the internet. So... Uh, basically, when you type the CAPTCHA, those words that you saw, the distorted words, were actually words that were coming from a book the computer could not recognize, and we were using what people were typing to help us digitize books. So that was, that was the idea that started a company, and as soon as we started the company, we started digitizing the old archives of the New York Times. That's what we started with. Kind of, the New York Times was this wonderful archive of 130 years before they went digital. As we were growing, we were able to digitize entire years of content of the New York Times in like a few days um, wow. by just people having typed the CAPTCHAs. 
Uh, but then at some point, uh, you know, Google kind of they realized that this could be useful for their book digitization project, so they they bought the company and. By now, it's helped digitize a lot of books, and that's that, that was it. Do you know how many? Ah, so it's hard to know the exact number. I do know the equivalent. It's 100 million words a day they're doing, which is the equivalent of 2 million books a year. I say equivalent because it's not just books. There's magazines, there's old newspapers, and by now they're also doing other stuff. If you ever used uh, Captcha lately, sometimes you get pictures of kind of street signs, which basically it's... The, the Google cars that are driving everywhere, they're taking pictures of street signs, and that's in order to improve the maps. And sometimes the computer cannot recognize what the street sign says, and that it gets sent to a CAPTCHA and somebody types it, so they're also using it to improve maps. Wow. But you, you didn't want to stay in Google? You, you, I was you, very you happy were, at Google. Yeah, I, was, I, was, I, I think it's a great company. But what happened is I was there for about, about two years after the acquisition. And throughout this time, I also became a professor in computer science. And I had a project with one of my PhD students that was about kind of, you know, how to teach things or teaching things in general. And I was way more interested in that than whatever it is I was doing at Google. So I decided to leave and concentrate on that. And that's the project that I'm still working on, which is called Duolingo. So just tell us about Duolingo and what that is. So it's a free app on free app, yeah. any smartphone, basically, to learn a language. That's right. It's, it's a website, Duolingo.com, or also it's an app on, on Android, on iPhones, on Windows phones. And it's a way to learn a language. The way, the way that started is I was thinking with my, my PhD student, you know, what, what, should, what should we work on? At the time, I was in a pretty fortunate position in my life. I just sold my second company to Google. I didn't really want to work on something that was necessarily going to generate a lot of money for me. I wanted to work on something that, was, that would have impact. And in particular, we both kind of settled on education. Education is something that has always been very dear to me. I'm a professor after all. But my personal views on education were always very related to where I'm from. I'm, I was born in Guatemala. And there, it's a very poor country. And what happens there is a lot of people talk about education as something that brings equality to different social classes. But especially in countries like Guatemala, I always saw it as the opposite. People who have a lot of money can buy themselves the best education in the world. Some of them come here to the United States or to Europe and get really good education. And because they get such good education, they remain having a lot of money. Whereas people who don't have very much money barely learn how to read and write. So what I wanted to do was do something that would give equal access to education to everybody. That was the idea. But education is very general. So... We ended up deciding to go with languages. You know, I, I, I didn't know how to teach everything, but languages was a pretty good thing. And we went with languages in part because it's such a large market. In the U.S., people don't think that it's a large market because not that many people are interested in learning languages. But in the world, I mean, there, there's 1.2 billion people learning a language. And so we decided that what we wanted to do was launch an app. At first, it was a website, but then an app that would teach languages for free. That's it. And that's what Duolingo, that's how it started. And the sort of format of it is, is very different to uh, Rosetta Stone or, or, or some of those kinds of existing language learning. It's, I mean, did it become more of this kind of simple, friendly, kind of snackable approach to learning because it was primarily being used on the phone? Or was, was the reason it made sense as an app because that was the way that you thought was best? Yeah. Because you, you, you had no experience in teaching languages at this point. We had no experience. Neither, neither me nor my co-founder. My, my entire language learning experience is I learned English at a young age, but I don't actually remember learning English. And then I tried learning French in high school because I had a crush on a girl and I failed to learn French. I, I got an A in the class, but I failed to learn anything from French. That is my entire ling- language learning experience before this. So the, the first thing we did is we, we read books on how to best teach languages. Uh, you know, they had all kinds of 
uh, theories about how to best teach languages, we were pretty surprised by the fact that the books couldn't really agree on what really the best method to teach a language was. I mean, we were both kind of engineers trying to come up with with a way to teach languages. We had really simple questions like, should we teach plurals before adjectives, for example? And there didn't seem to be a clear answer to this question. So we took what we could, um, but pretty quickly we realized we, we built a system for ourselves first. I, I started trying to learn German with our own system. And pretty quickly we realized the hardest part about learning a language, and this is not just our own realization. I mean, a lot of people have realized this, but I think the hardest part about learning a language or learning anything by yourself is to keep yourself motivated. It was really hard to keep ourselves motivated. I mean, it, we would start, we would do it a couple of days, and then, boy, um, as soon as it starts getting hard and you got to memorize a million words and nothing starts making sense, you just give up. That's when we really thought, well, we should try to, in as much as possible, make this fun. So the thing we launched was exactly very snackable. is. You know, the lessons uh, by design last about four minutes. Of course, there's variants. I mean, some people do them a little faster. Some people take a little longer, but it, they're supposed to last about four minutes. We added all kinds of, you know, features that make it look a lot like a game or feel like a game. You get points when you finish a lesson. There's also a, we call it the language tree. But basically, when whenever you're progressing through your course, you're unlocking new things, which is a very game-like thing. And so that that was the idea. It was it was it started like that, and because of that, I think it became really popular as an app. I mean, when we launched, we launched as a website, and we launched in 2012. At the time, um, you know, apps were kind of getting big, but still, web was bigger than apps. And we thought, well, we should probably have a companion app. And when we designed it, we pretty quickly realized that the format was much better for the apps. And then we launched it. We launched first on on iPhones. Within a month, the, the iPhone app had completely overtaken the website in traffic. And, and by now, our traffic on the website is about uh, 13% of our whole traffic. And then the rest is mobile. And it's, it's because it's very snackable. You were saying that the main problem is making sure that you stick with it. What's the kind of how many people are using it? How many still using it from 2012? Or yeah. I mean, to some extent, because I suppose it's a difficult question because to some people, you want to use the app and then stop using it because you've yeah. learned the language or, or enough to, to get you by the next vacation or whatever it is. How do you sort of measure success in that? Yeah, we measure a lot of things. So we have a lot of users. We were fortunate and I guess we worked pretty hard on it. I mean, by now, Duolingo is by far the most popular way to learn languages in the world. There's a bunch of interesting statistics. There are more people actively learning a language on Duolingo in the U.S., than there are people learning a language in the whole U.S. public school system. Here's another interesting one. We teach we teach a lot of different languages. We teach like you know the big ones like German, French, uh, Spanish, but we also teach some smaller ones like Irish. Uh, I didn't actually know Irish was a language uh, until <laughs> I thought they spoke English there, which they do. Uh, but apparently, there are 94,000 native speakers of Irish, and we started teaching Irish. We now have about a million people learning Irish actively on Duolingo. We just got an award from the Irish president because we are <laughs> <laughs> increasing. So uh, it's very popular. I mean, the, what we measure, we really have spent a lot of time measuring the fraction of people when they sign up, what fraction of people come back the next day, what fraction of people are still here seven days later, what fraction of people are here 30 days later. And we've improved that a lot. So when we launched on the website, that's called day one retention. That's the number of people who come back one day after signing up. That was 13%, which was relatively low. So 13% of people who sign up were here the next day. Today, that number is almost 60%. And the way we've improved it is just just by doing a lot of testing on well on the platform. So, for example, we do things like, by now it's pretty commonly known, this thing called A-B testing, where 
we basically we look at you know one of the major improvements early on 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 the website not on the apps um there was a the, the first screen after you signed up it said um hover on the words to see their translations we were trying to, it was a little tutorial and it said hover on the words to see their translations and we noticed that a lot of people were kind of were stopping on that screen and just going away and at some point somebody in the company came across uh i don't know it was their their older brother or something like that who actually didn't know what the word hover meant and then we thought oh maybe some people don't know what the word hover means so we changed that to click or hover on the words that's we just changed the instructions you don't actually have to click we just changed the instructions and we tried it as an a b test so to half the people who were signing up we gave this instructions the other half we just gave hover and it turns out that that increased the day one retention by like five percent so we've done a lot of these. I mean, this is an easy to explain experiment. A lot of them are, are much kind of harder to explain and, and, and deeper changes. But we've done a lot of experiments like that um, to make to make the system more, you know, more enjoyable. And you were drawn to the idea of, of, of changing education, but you did not do it through the school system or, or the traditional institutions that, that you were even a, a professor at. Why, why do Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. But that way around, why go straight to, to the consumer and let them do it by themselves rather than through a yeah, know, that familiar was, um, structure? We debated for a long time. It's funny, in retrospect, it's so clear. Our strategy is so clear that we, we did the right thing in this case. But we debated a lot um, whether we should go to schools first. And we actually talked to a few schools. You know, languages in the U.S. at least, they're mainly learned in high school. That's kind of the stage where people learn a language. We talked to a few schools. We realized when we were talking to the schools that it was going to be really difficult to go through the schools. When we were not very popular, we would talk to the schools and they would say, well, you know, who are you guys? You know, there's a million other things that I could be using. Why should I be using you? At the time, Rosetta Stone was significantly bigger than us. And like, well, there's Rosetta Stone. I know that you guys are free, but that probably means you're crappy. And so it, we found it that it was pretty difficult to get in the schools. And then, then we started getting even more signal that this was not, not going to be easy in that every school does it differently. And particular for languages, it's really not very standardized. And then that's in the U.S., uh, if you look at outside of the U.S., there's even more uh, differences. So we thought, man, if we're going to build something uh, for schools, it's going to be very difficult because it has to kind of apply to all schools. So we decided to go directly to consumer, and we grew a lot by just going directly to the consumers. And, and what we've now started realizing in the last maybe couple of years, we're so big now that what's happening is schools are coming to us, and they're telling us, Actually, I've, I've or teachers, they just tell us, I've changed my curriculum to match you. So instead of, instead of us having to, to adapt to the, the schools, the schools are adapting to us. And so that, that was the, the, the strategy, and, and I think it was a good strategy. By now, I believe that we are, we don't have exact numbers on this because it's difficult to measure, but I believe we're in 
about 15% of U.S. language classrooms are using Duolingo. And we've not, it's not like we've approached any of them. Uh, they, just, they just come to, to us. Do you think that's a, a transferable lesson for other types of education technology? Because as, as, you, you see there's different, different approaches and, you know, the sort of MOOCs phenomenon right. has kind of ebbed and flowed a bit over the years. I mean, what, what do you think other people who are trying to kind of crack that market, which has been a hard one to it, nail? Yeah, it's very difficult to nail, actually. Um, we just were having our, our board meeting yesterday uh, for Duolingo, the, the board of directors meeting. And, you know, one of the questions that we had in the board meeting was, there are no companies in the last you know, 20 years that are really worth $50 billion that are education companies. And, and you know, the question is, why is that? And I think one of the reasons is it's just very difficult to crack the education market. I don't know if our lesson transfers to everybody else for one particular reason, and it's that we teach languages, and languages have this very nice property that they are learned both in school and outside of school. In fact, it's pretty even. It's about 50% of people who are learning a language are doing so in school, and about 50% are doing so outside of school. That's rare. For example, physics. My best guess is that 98% of physics is learned in school. I don't know the exact number, but it is overwhelmingly high. Same with mathematics, same with a lot of things. There's a few things that are learned both in and outside of school, but there's not very many. Music is probably one that is in and out. Cooking is one that's mainly outside of school. So we, we were fortunate that we were in this uh, space that, that allowed us to first grow directly with consumers and grow big. I mean, we have you know, tens of millions of active users. It allows us to grow big in com- consumers. And then at that point, it's much easier to get into schools. But you are now going beyond languages because Tiny Cards, which came out middle of last year, is, is expanding the portfolio of what you're doing. Just tell yeah. us about that. Yeah, we are. Since we've been so successful as an education app, I mean, we're... We're usually the most downloaded education app in every country in the world, or most every country usually. But we only teach one thing. We only teach languages. So we thought, well, maybe we can start applying all of our learnings to other areas of education. And we took our first foray into this. About four months ago, we launched this app called Tiny Cards. It's a little more general. This app is basically a flashcards app. It's to help you memorize whatever you want. So if you want to memorize uh, you know, parts of the body, you can make your little deck of cards in, in the app and it helps you memorize parts of the body or, or whatever. Uh, so we are, we're trying to expand. I think that we're likely going to do other apps. And one that I'm particularly interested in, I don't know when we'll launch it, but one that I'm particularly interested in is learning how to read and write in your native language, so literacy. The numbers are pretty staggering. There's a billion adults that don't know how to read and write. I think that would be a pretty huge step forward in the world if we could reduce this number we're, we're pretty interested in this and and so we may do others but we are running into this problem i mean with tiny cards itself already this is an app that is for memorizing stuff that's that's the idea it turns out that the main place where people are memorizing stuff is in school there's just not that many people memorizing stuff outside of school there's some but there's just not that much so this is an example of, of an app that we're going to have to grow in schools first and we're doing it, and, and it's growing, fortunately, but the Duolingo strategy does not apply to this because there's just not that many you know, end consumers that, that want to memorize stuff for fun. It's just not, not that fun to memorize things. What are the different sort of interfaces that you've experimented with? Because you're, there's a sort of chatbot way of, of learning the language as well mm-hmm. through Duolingo. I don't know if you've looked at doing that off Duolingo as well, but obviously we have all these... Uh, voice-activated assistants, the mm-hmm. uh, names of which I won't recognize in case I set them all off, that are popping up in our homes now. is that I mean, it feels as though perhaps there's more of an opportunity to get that sort of talking as opposed to typing 
more as a way of, of learning this as well are you looking beyond the phone and we in are so you know as a first step in the phone we added our own chatbot for duolingo but one of the most common requested features is i would like to practice conversation and at first we started thinking well the actual thing that people say is i would like to practice conversation can you pair me up with another person and we'll practice conversation that gets requested a lot on duolingo and we thought this is what we should build But when we started investigating this, we realized there's a small minority of people who really want this. But when it comes down to it and you actually try this, the vast majority of people don't actually want to be paired up with a random person to speak a language that they are not very comfortable with. There's just too much social anxiety. And there's also there's a lot of apps that try to do this where they pair you up with another person. None of them get very much usage. So we decided that instead we would pair you up with an artificial intelligence. And that's where the chatbot came in. Um, they don't feel judged by an artificial intelligence. Who knows if it's judging us, but they don't feel judged. And we're likely going to do it outside of the phone. Right now, we're waiting until the platforms grow. We've made a mistake in previous years of launching things very early on, on certain platforms that haven't grown yet. And some of them die. And that was a, a lot of investment. What, what, what so, so, for example, we launched an app on Google Glass. Uh-huh. Uh, we actually had a Google Glass app. Uh, it didn't take us too long to make, but we did spend the effort on it. We had about, I don't know, we had maybe 500 daily active users, of which like 350 were located in Mountain View, California. <laughs> so they were all at Google. <laughs> I mean, we've done a few of these kind of very early adopter things. And, and so we've learned our lesson, and we're hoping that, you know, for example, we didn't have an Apple Watch app. And, and part of the reason is it happens that Apple Watch apps are not that popular. I mean, maybe Apple Watches are somewhat popular, but the apps in them are just not that popular. So we're not going to get in on that yet. Are you on Android Wear? Uh, we are on Android Wear. We actually just stopped support for it. We were getting very little usage, and that was adding an extra four megabytes to our app size. And we considered those four megabytes more important than supporting the Android app. It turns out, you know, for for somebody here in in the US, maybe an extra four megabytes of your app size is not a big deal. But our app gets used a lot by people in developing countries where they're learning English. And for a person in India, an extra four megabytes in their phone is a big deal, not only because the download costs money and they don't want to do it but you know their usage patterns on their phones they keep on uninstalling and installing apps because they don't have room for more so this actually helped us grow by having a smaller app yeah because i mean here in silicon valley there's all these excitements about all these new platforms but at the same time the smartphone market continues to grow and smartphones continue to grow around the world and even if you know apple's iphone growth isn't perhaps what it was there are there are 150 dollar or cheaper smartphones that are like you said spreading all over india and africa where there's perhaps even greater need for what you're offering. I mean, so are you still riding that kind of wave of, of mobile growth generally around the world? Yeah, we are. And and you can see it in the countries where, you know, the, basically developing countries are growing quite a bit compared to developed markets for us. I mean, we're, we're growing in every market, but our growth rates in, you know, for example, uh, US or something, probably growing, I don't know, 50, 60% year on year. Whereas if you look in, uh, like in, Indi- in India, we grew 500% year on year. So there's a big difference in the in the growth rate between between the the markets. I guess the challenge in that has so far has sometimes been making money from from those people in emerging markets. But you have a slightly different business model, right? I mean, we would also like to you know pay for our operation. Right. Uh, so yeah, that is a challenge. I mean, for example, we are starting to monetize the app itself, and we know that a user in the U.S. for us is worth literally a 100 times more than a user in India. 
in terms of how much we can monetize them. It's, it's a factor of 100. Uh, <laughs> Just briefly explain how, what the kind of options are for monetizing that audience. We're doing three things to monetize. The first one is the easiest to explain. We have started for certain users, we are now giving them a small ad at the end of a lesson. We have enough users that that is actually coming very close to breaking us even. We spend $25 million a year to support Duolingo, and so that's coming, that's coming very close to that. One that I'm very excited about, which is kind of fits in with our mission, we have this, this thing called the Duolingo English Test, which is, uh, again, if, if you're in the U.S. or, or in an English-speaking country, you, this is completely foreign to you. But it turns out about $10 billion a year are spent by people certifying that they know English. And the people who would need to do that is, for example, if you're applying to come to college here in the U.S. or in the U.K. to an English-speaking country, you have to take a standardized test that proves that you know English. Or if you want to get a job at a multinational corporation and you're in a non-English-speaking country, you also have to take a test, a standardized test that proves that you know English. Or if you want to get a work visa in the U.K., you have to prove that you can speak English. And all in all, $10 billion are spent on that. And the way they're spent is usually there's these standardized tests. There's a few of them. One is called the TOEFL. Another one's called the IELTS. They're all very similar. They all cost about $250. And in order to take them, what you have to do is you have to go to a physical testing center to take this test. And it usually takes about four weeks to make an appointment to take the test. So it's, it's about four weeks, $250, you got to go somewhere. So it's a little annoying. But it's even worse because most people taking this are in developing countries. So for them, $250 is a month's salary. The testing center is not in every city, so you may have to travel. So it's this crazy thing. So what we decided to do is we decided to make our own test. And it's in an app. It's $50 as opposed to uh, $250. You can take it immediately. And for that uh, product, the biggest challenge has been getting recognized by organizations that we are uh, a real English test. But we're doing very well. This year, about 30 U.S. universities that are well-known U.S. universities are, are starting to use our test as an alternative to the other tests. And so the hope is that over time we're going to be able to, to, to overtake the other tests. You were held up a few years ago as a sort of champion of what was then the very trendy phrase of gamification, the idea that everything will be turned into a game and then we'll all just keep playing it like everyone <laughs> is still playing Candy right. Crush. As a sort of buzzword, that seems to be a bit on the wane, but does, do you still believe in that concept? I do. I, I think what has happened there is that a lot of different apps and, and systems have applied a lot of these learnings, and now it's just so common that people are not using it so much. And I think one of the learnings that people had is that you don't have to go all the way to a game, and you don't have to have these things called points or these things called badges, but you can apply gamification ideas. I mean, and there are some very basic ones. For example, people love filling up progress bars. If you put a progress bar on something and you get somebody to 75% of that progress bar, they will go to 100%. I mean, that is a gamification technique. And there's, there's a few ideas like that. And I think, I think generally this has led to better user interfaces, more addictive products. And, you know, I personally wouldn't mind playing Candy Crush all day. <laughs> <laughs> the concept behind Capture was a sort of computer-generated test that, that humans can pass that computers can't. Given all the advances we've seen in computer vision and AI generally, how, how quickly is that changing? And, and, and how quickly do we get to a point where AI is so good that we don't even need to learn languages? Well, AI is advancing a lot. I mean, that's, that's for sure. And it's getting harder and harder. This is why, uh, you know, the distorted characters are getting more and more distorted or they're changing things because, because computers are getting much better at recognizing distorted characters or at doing a lot of things that humans can do. You know, 
at some point, computers will probably be able to do everything humans can. I think that's a ways off. I mean, who knows when that'll be, right? But I, I don't, you know, that's 30 years away or, or something like that. It's a ways off, I think, or maybe even longer than that. I mean, I don't know. It doesn't seem that far. Well, I don't think me, it's, yeah. well, I guess I just want to say some people think it's like five. It's not five. Uh, it's going to be more than that. Now, you know, in terms of learning languages, I, I'm not too worried about that. At some point, at some point, every, everybody will probably put out of a job and we'll have to figure out what the hell to do as humans. But in terms of learning a language, I mean, if you've ever listened to a talk, you know, like the way they do it in the UN where they like do this quote unquote simultaneous translation, it's really annoying. And this is what it would be like if computers are translating to you. I mean, basically, there would be a delay. It won't be super perfect because, you know, understanding the user, et cetera. And as, uh, it's it's very annoying. I don't think that that's you know going to substitute us learning a language. What's the next uh, step for Duolingo as a company? Um, we're working on a number of of exciting things uh, right now. We have this chatbot that is text. You know, you basically get to text to the chatbot. That's going to have voice at some point. So I'm pretty excited by that. Another thing is we just launched a social feature for it. Um, Duolingo has always it's always been pretty individualized. You're learning a language by yourself. Um, we launched this thing called Duolingo Clubs which is basically you can start a club um, that is you just basically invite some of your friends to learn with you. Or you can join a club that is kind of public and that allows you to compete with with your friends. We've we found that to be really, that's really motivating. I mean, for example, people who are in a, in a club are something like 15% more likely to become daily active users than people who are not in a club. So we're going to be adding a lot more social features. That's something else. And then the other thing is we're going to be adding a lot more advanced content. I mean, we keep on getting asked about, you know, just more ways to learn for advanced users, and we're going to be doing that. Great. Luis, thank you very much indeed for coming by and talking to us. Uh, thank you. Thank you for having me. We'll be back with another episode of Tectonic next week when you can hear from Tom Illoub a British entrepreneur who helps harness the work of university scientists for the cybersecurity industry. If you'd like to comment on today's show or suggest any topics you'd like us to cover in future episodes, please email us at tectonic at ft.com. This episode of Tectonic was produced by Amy Keane.